Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories of the week also centered around New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. Prosecutors on Monday released a bunch of documents detailing his actions at the Orchids of Asia Day Spa in Jupiter, Florida. He was charged with two first-degree misdemeanor counts of soliciting prostitution. Investigators say that Robert Kraft was there twice in a 24-hour period. My producer Miranda joins us for details and how the NFL is reacting. And we started off by talking about what this sex trafficking ring was all about. So Robert Kraft's arrest was actually part of a crackdown on sex trafficking in Florida. Hundreds of arrest warrants have been issued as a result of this six-month-long investigation. And even more arrests are expected. Ten spas have been closed from Palm Beach to Orlando. And several people charged with sex trafficking have been taken into custody. Authorities were investigating these spas and massage parlors for months, gathering enough evidence through visual observation, just watching people come in and out. Interviews with the guys who were stopped leaving the spas. How awkward is that? Oh, God. They went through the trash and then they actually surveillance the owners. Judges were then able to issue warrants to allow these investigators to install secret cameras inside the spas to record what transpired. Yeah, you're talking about searching the trash bins, and we've talked about this with just other cases, solving cold case murders. Golden State Killer. You know, and the guy wiped his mouth after eating the hot dog, and Mm -hmm. they get the DNA from there. So they have that sort of evidence from some of these trash bins that they've found on napkins. We're talking about prostitution rings, sex trafficking stuff. The women that are involved in this were living in horrible conditions. They were forced to live at the spas, cook their food in the back room, things like that. A lot of the times they weren't even allowed to leave the premises, say for a doctor's appointment or just a general errand without some kind of an escort going with them. There's two women suspected of running the operation. They're importing women from other countries, mostly China, and then forcing them to work there as sex slaves. We don't want to get it confused. Robert Kraft is not involved in this part of it, in the prostitution ring, in the sex trafficking part of it. He's just accused, along with, I think, 25 other men or so, of soliciting, of actually patronizing, going there and getting the services and paying for them. And, you know, the NFL has issued a statement saying, you know, we're going to not comment on ongoing investigation. We got to see what everything is going on, but they have said that they are going to take the appropriate action just as for any other violation that happens under their policy. Yeah, they've got a personal conduct policy and they said that that applies equally from everyone in the NFL from, you know, referees and ball boys all the way up to the top to the commissioner and the owners of the teams. Part of this policy requires the owners and the players to refrain from conduct detrimental to the integrity of and public confidence in the NFL. And in the past 20 years, the NFL has at least two times sanctioned team owners for personal conduct violations. So in 2014, Indiana Colts owner Jim Irsay was suspended for six games and then fined for $500,000 after pleading guilty to a DUI. And then in 99, the league suspended the then San Francisco 49ers owner, Eddie DiBartolo Jr., for the entire season and fined him a million dollars in connection with some kind of a gambling scandal in Louisiana. 
and Robert Kraft accused of soliciting prostitution, that's pretty serious. And it does put a bad stain on the NFL. Especially and, after and, just having won their sixth Super Bowl. And then especially considering all of the problems that they've had with domestic violence issues and players and investigations going wrong and or not thorough enough. It's going to be tough to square away for Robert Kraft because investigators say that they have video surveillance evidence of the sex acts going on. As a matter of fact, we have some of those details. And just in case anybody is squeezing about these things, you probably want to turn away now, but I hope you don't. Really quick, the maximum sentence as far as the uh, solicitation charges, up to a year in jail, 100 hours of community service, and then a class on the dangers of prostitution and human trafficking. He'll probably... And that's aside from what happens with the NFL, which could be suspension and penalties. Right. He probably won't see any significant type of jail time. He's a first offender, all this other stuff, but that's the possibility of what it can take. Okay, so now on to the CD details. They have video surveillance of him, and this is just coming from court documents. What do we know, Miranda? Yeah, well, we know that he visited the spa two times in less than 24 hours, January 19th for 40 minutes and January 20th for about 15 minutes. And he paid more than $200 each time he went. According to court documents, he paid for a threesome on the January 19th event with two women taking turns, quote, manipulating his genitals. Once he finished, the women cleaned him up and he gave them each a hundred dollar bill. And then the next day, the second incident occurred on January 20th, which is the same day that the Patriots played the Chiefs in the AFC championship game, yeah, so, for which he was present. So real quick, he got there at 11 a.m. He spent about at 15, the spa. At the spa. He spent about 15 minutes there. He left, and there was a blue Bentley waiting for him. It took him to his private jet, and then he <laughs> went off to the to that game that day. What a life. Yeah. As for incident number two, officials describe it this way. An employee walked Robert Kraft back to a room, and they have the cameras in the room. The two hugged each other. Kraft then took off all of his clothes. He laid down face up on the massage table and the employee gave him another hug. And then a couple minutes later, she started getting to work, then put her head down there. This went on for several minutes. After a few minutes, she then cleaned him up with a white towel, helped him get dressed, hugged him again. And then he gave her a hundred dollars. And men. If that video ever surfaces, that's going to be some... And Palm Beach County is a wealthy county. I'm curious to see how many other high-profile individuals get busted in this sting. Since we did the story earlier in the week, there has been a few updates. Robert Kraft did plead not guilty to the two counts against him, and he wants a non-jury trial. He's one of 25 men being charged in this. Miranda, tell us what that's about. So they're saying that these charges could be a long shot for prosecutors, partly because the women he was caught on video with are the spa manager and a licensed masseuse, and that both are legally residents of the United States. So it's not like he was using the actual sex slaves to do his uh, dirty work. He still did go there. He still get obtained services. (laughs) He still paid them after. I mean, what are they going to allege that... They're just really good friends and they wanted to do him a favor and he gave them a gift in money. We have a couple more details and Kraft paid cash at the front desk. He went to another room. He took off his clothes. They did give him a actual massage where he was lying face down before they turned him over and finished the job. That was on the first day. He was there for about 40 minutes. 40 minutes, exactly. And we have more details about how they were actually able to positively identify him because it's grainy security camera footage. What happened is we know that 
Kraft left the spa in a Bentley that was being chauffeured. Right. What we did know is that this was how the police were doing the sting operation is they would wait for the men to leave the spa, follow them for a couple of blocks, and then pull them over for a routine traffic stop to verify their identifications through their driver's licenses. And that's what happened with Robert Kraft. An attorney who's not affiliated with the case is saying that because of the false pretense of a traffic stop, that that's an illegal traffic stop and therefore inadmissible in court. And there's no way to prove it really was Robert Kraft. Wow. Well, we'll continue to see what develops there. And again, how the NFL reacts to all this. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. (laughs) The opioid epidemic continues to plague large swaths of the country. But in the small town of Little Falls, Minnesota, they've made tremendous progress in getting that problem under control. They didn't do anything revolutionary. They just made a real effort and spent real money. They treated the opioid addiction as a disease instead of a crime. When somebody was caught with pills they maybe shouldn't have, they didn't get tossed in jail. They tried to get them treatment. They put them into a treatment program. For more on this, we spoke to Dan Vergano. He's a BuzzFeed news reporter. And we started off by talking about the blueprint they used to curb this drug epidemic. What they're doing is treating opioid use disorder and really any kind of drug use disorder as a disease, as an epidemic. So they still lock people up when they commit crimes, of course, but if they find that they have a drug disorder, then they get treatment. That's a radical thing to do in this country, it turns out. And likewise, if you go into the hospital and you overdose, you go into treatment. You don't wake up and you're sent on your way home. They have tied together all parts of their community towards treating drug dependency as a, as a disease and, and not as a crime, not as a war on drugs thing. And that has seems to have made a big difference in terms of people showing up at the emergency room, wanting more painkillers and things like crime. So it does seem like they have turned a corner just by doing all of the things that you got to do to deal with this. In your story, you profiled a woman named Monica Rudolph. She had it really bad. There was a point where her life was broken down into four or five hour increments of getting high because she couldn't go any longer without starting to feel any withdrawal symptoms or, or the need for more. A lot of what Little Falls did was we talked about the money that goes into this. They spent $1.4 million in state grants over the last five years on all the public health stuff that they needed to get done, limiting the prescription refills, which is super important, increasing the access to addiction medications, and then, uh, as we've been saying right now, putting users in treatment instead of jail. Yeah, and the point of the story wasn't that, hey, you got to get a grant. It's that th- this whole thing costs money, and as a country, we got to get ourselves in gear. It's going to cost a lot to deal with this, but we're talking about spending $8 billion on a wall. That $8 billion would probably be much more effective in terms of these grants, in terms of halting the overdose epidemic, just to step out on a limb there on that. And, and likewise, a lot of things you spend money on aren't as effective as the kind of things you're doing here. So there's about $3 billion federally set aside for dealing with the crisis, and then another $9 billion in Medicaid if you if your state has Affordable Care Act. But it turns out that that's nothing to what we have to do as a country to address this problem. It's going to be tens of billions of dollars, which sounds like a lot, but we spend a lot more money on things that aren't as effective already. So what this city has done essentially is created a model by applying for these leading these pilot grants, and now it's serving as sort of a lab or a, a place that's sort of letting other towns know how to do this sort of thing. Talk about the success that Little Falls had specifically. They basically had was a meth problem the decade before. So they had the bones of a meth task force in place. So they knew how to tie together the community to deal with an addiction crisis already. And 
when they started to dial down the number of pills prescribed to people, which was the source, you know, teenagers were getting these pills from their parents and grandparents and then essentially getting hooked on the drugs. They saw, oh my gosh, if we're going to do that, we can't just leave people out to dry dependent on these things. We have to start treating them in the clinic. And it's a small enough town and a small enough hospital that they could do that with a team that was staffed 24 hours. If you call, you know, to get in the treatment. And then they looked at the next place is the jail, which is where people fall through the cracks. And they said they tied all these things together. So they have all the parts of the community working in unison now to treat the problem as a disease and not as a crime. It turned out it took them stumbling into each problem is, you know, they fixed one problem, another one reared its head. And so they had to weld it together that way, one problem at a time. Their story is a great read. And, and as I said, you talk about Monica's journey through the process and getting treatment and kind of going full circle. Wonderful. She's a counselor now as part of this program for other people to help them get help. But a lot of it does have to do with the sheer will of coming together with a plan, figuring out what you need. And as you said, you know, that money, a lot of the uh, Little Falls and other cities did get federal grants, did get state money from the state also. And it's about putting together these effective teams to really help solve this problem. Monica is like a lot of people. She just was lucky in her hometown. You know, if she'd been in any other hometown in that state, pretty much, and she had called the hospital, they would have told her, come in Monday, and it wouldn't have worked. She would have gone out and had to get heroin again to get well. So, like, that's what's really happening, is we have to make it easy for people to get into treatment rather than impossible. If they're dependent where they got to get well in the next eight hours, or they're going to feel like they're going to die, that's what they're going to do. So, if we make it easier to get, go into treatment rather than doing that, then we can start to have address uh, this part of the problem. Dan Vergano, BuzzFeed News reporter, thank you very much for joining us. You bet. YouTube has been in the news a lot recently. They're having a lot of problems related to their services and children. First, they had to disable a lot of comments on millions of videos where users were commenting with timestamps on videos that showed minors in suggestive positions and situations. People were being really creepy and they said it was some type of softcore pedophile ring and they're using the comment sections uh, to connect with other people. Secondly, reports said that their YouTube kids platform was showing children videos with disturbing behavior on them. There'd be cartoons where the little characters would commit suicide, different things like that. Louise Metzakis, she's a security writer for, at Wired. She joins us for some tips on how to protect your kids. And we start off by talking about how YouTube is responding to these specific problems. I think what's really interesting about this story is that it actually came from YouTube itself, right? It was a YouTuber who kind of brought this to the attention of the greater world. It's a pretty intense step that they're taking here to just disable the comment section, right? Which is a very prominent part of YouTube's platform. But I think that they're really moving quickly and swiftly here and making a really big change because this is so serious and it is pedophilia and it's children. And what a lot of these videos seem to be were like gymnastics videos or videos involving young children. And many of the videos were actually innocuous, right? But the comments were where this issue was happening, which is kind of a unique problem here. It's not the content of the video itself. It's the greater commentary and social media aspect of the platform. And it wasn't the people uploading the videos themselves either. These were just creepy people that came across the video and commented on it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that this is causing a lot of upset in the creator community because it's not really their fault, right? It's not the creators who uploaded these videos that are kind of at fault here. It's the commenters. And a lot of creators are saying, well, it's not really my problem to moderate the comments. And YouTube is saying, you know, actually, 
if you are uploading these videos of minors and we're going to let you keep the comment section, you need to be actively moderating it. So it's kind of another added burden here for creators. I think YouTube's definitely making the right choice because this is such a serious issue. And there's also a money aspect here, right? A bunch right. of advertisers pulled out because of this. Let's talk about YouTube kids because that's another disturbing trend where, you know, a lot of times parents will set up their kid with an iPad or something and say, hey, look at YouTube kids. The implication, the thought is that there's going to be a, a lot of nice videos, you know, Sesame Street type things, educational cartoon things. But we're getting reports that certain things like uh, a kid can be watching Peppa the Pig and then uh, she drinks bleach or she gets stabbed or something like that. There's all sorts of different videos uh, that are coming up and kids are just kind of observing them. They're not they don't necessarily know what to do and they're not doing anything specifically either to search those out. I think what's important for parents to know here is that this has been an issue from the start. When YouTube Kids was first released in 2015, within a couple months, child advocates groups were complaining that there was disturbing content on the platform. So it's definitely an issue. And the reason that this app exists is that in the United States, we have a law that you're not allowed to collect information on users under 13. So that's why it's a different app and it's a different experience and it's supposed to be safer, right? It's supposed to be the safer environment, but it's really not. And YouTube now straight up says we cannot manually moderate every video. Inappropriate videos might slip through. So they're pretty forthcoming about that in a way that they weren't necessarily in the past. What I recommend parents do is that YouTube has new features where you can only limit the content your child views to videos you actually handpick yourself. And you can handpick groups of channels that are curated by UNICEF or by PBS. So if you just want to set this up really quickly and not worry about it, you can pick those channels, but then you're not letting your kids search the greater landscape of YouTube kids, which is really where these kind of creepy type of the pig kind of things come up. And that's an important distinction to this being able to limit it to just these curated videos, because from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it uses a lot of keywords. So if somebody uploads a video that says Peppa the Pig and, you know, in the middle of the video, it has some of the disturbing images, YouTube kids and YouTube at large is just kind of organizing things based off of those keywords. So if the video ends and it says next recommended video is this Peppa the Pig video. That's how things pop up. That's how it, it shows up onto these apps for, for the kids. It's the recommendation algorithm. It's the up next video that plays automatically after the official type of a pig video, right? Like that's, it's not that any parent is choosing these like knockoff creepy videos. It's that they come up via the recommendation algorithm and the creators, if you can call them that, you know, the people that make these videos are piggybacking on already popular trends. It's not that that's why those things come up because they piggyback on the real Peppa the Pig or the real Mickey Mouse or whatever it is. Exactly. So if you turn off that feature where you're not letting those recommended algorithmically chosen videos into your kid's iPad or whatever, then you're stopping kind of that from happening. But a lot of parents don't know about that. And, you know, especially if you're just trying to set this up really quickly, it's not always easy to, to know where all those parental controls are. Or if you're not even using the YouTube Kids app, if you're just using the normal YouTube app. That's a whole other set of issues, right? The other problem is that kids are really smart and they figure out a way around these settings very quickly and very easily. A lot of times, you know, the clicking around, they figure out, oh, you know, this opens me to a whole new world of videos here. I'm going to do it right away. So that's the other thing that parents need to be concerned about. Yeah, kids are really smart. They don't even need to be able to read to get around this stuff. Like you can search via YouTube kids with your voice. So definitely keep that in mind that even if you think you've done everything, you probably haven't. And they can just close YouTube kids and go in the browser or something like that. Right. Yeah. Definitely. These are not a foolproof solution, but especially if you have really young kids, definitely turn these things on. Yeah, And if you need, really need a lockdown on it, set a timer so that the app stops when uh, the time you set runs out and that way they can't see anymore. Louise Matsakis, security writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.